So our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Again, today is the story of Jesus' time being tempted in the wilderness. It's in, again on the front of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, by the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and by your Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, and in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. How many of you remember the TV show Wife Swap? Remember that? What a horrible name for a TV show. Ugh, gross. But uh, it wasn't a great show either. It wasn't my favorite show, but it was... It's still on? Ugh. It was a reality show. It's a reality show. And basically what happens is uh, two families, and mom switches families for like a week. And then they have to experience what life is like with a different kind of person in the household, mom or the wife. And then at the end, they all come back together, and they kind of compare notes about what happened over the course of that week. And uh, the reason I bring it up today is there was this particular episode. I wasn't a big fan, but I did catch this one. This deeply religious woman participated, she and her family. And so on the night that they all come back together after this week off, uh, and they're all comparing notes about how the week went, it turns out that her family, and I don't remember specifically what it was, but they had a few things to share with mom about how life in their home could get better and how she probably needed to change some of her own behavior now, because they've seen something else. Steeply, a religious woman stands up and goes, the devil, the devil, right? And she just screams and runs around her house, her yard, screaming, the devil, get these cameras out of my house. I want nothing to do with this. When the Bible starts talking about the devil or Satan, that story comes to mind. Not because I want to deny that it's in the Bible. It is. This personification of evil uh, called the devil or Satan. This idea that there is this kind of third actor. There's God and then there's us and there's third actor and there's this kind of battle for good and evil. I'm not denying that's in the Bible, but I've seen too often that we as Christians get to those stories and the next thing you know we do that 
people will do that thing, or we have a propensity to do that thing where we go, either the devil made me do it, or I'm hearing something I don't want to hear, and you're the devil. So I'm not denying it, but I come to these stories and I go, oh, dude, can we just skip it? Because to me, the devil and evil is the third actor. There's two way more important actors, and this is very consistent in the Bible. There's the first actor, which is God, and then there's humanity or creation or somehow the other of us. And the Bible's about that relationship. It's not about what the devil's doing. It's about us and what we're doing. And I, I don't want to get distracted from that. So I get to these stories, and I go, I don't want to do these stories. But, like I said last week, be renewed by the transforming of your mind, like Paul said. Meet Jesus again for the first time. Repent. Turn around. Forget the God you do not believe in. Meet the God who believes in you. All that stuff I talked about last week, it's my turn. And I come to the story and go, I don't want to deal with it, but I'm going to because be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, honestly, for the first time ever, I'm preaching on this text. I've never wanted to deal with it before. And amazingly, I can testify to that transforming of your mind thing is real because I started actually bothering to read a commentary on this, like actually have somebody try and explain what they think Matthew is doing. And I went, oh, this isn't a story about spiritual warfare. This isn't about Jesus facing down evil and we getting this conflict. Not really. It kind of grows. Part of that is the story, but it's the third actor. Like almost everything else in the Bible, this is God and us story. And it's not Im immediately clear. There's going to be a lot of Old Testament stuff going on here, which is part of what excites me. I'm like, oh, I love this story now. There's so much Old Testament in it. I know when I go Old Testament on you guys, uh, I get love for it. I get hate for it. But wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. This is good, okay? So, transformed by the reading of your mind. Put aside for a moment the idea that this is all about good and evil and the battle, the spiritual warfare over earth, and that's what Jesus is for. Let's consider something new. And in fact, before I move on, let me just say, if, I don't think there's anybody in this room I have to say this to, but if you know somebody who's sort of obsessed with that spiritual warfare stuff, and they're, they're screaming, devil, 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 at everyone else, I don't know how you do this, but remember, believing in someone else, as I said last week, also means sometimes you go, what you're doing is not cute. It needs to stop. So in some way, just be aware that I'm on your side if you look at that person in your life and you go, what is it that you're avoiding about you by blaming it on the devil? Anyway, didn't want to let that go. But let's get into this text then, okay? This, what is really going on here? What is Matthew really up to in talking about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Well, look at it this way. We start with the fact that this is not Jesus versus the devil, particularly. The first line in this is, who leads Jesus out into the wilderness to do this? It's the Spirit. The Spirit of God is putting Jesus through this. Turns out that the devil is some sort of like proxy test guy. He's the one who's administering the test, but it's not his test. It's God's test. Okay? So not good versus evil. 
there's something at stake for God here. The Father, who, by the way, last week, we just learned in the last line of it, in Jesus' baptism, remember, the Spirit comes and alights him on the head, and we have God say about Jesus, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness, and then I tried to emphasize this, if you heard it, the devil is given the task of administering a test, this testing of Jesus, and every time it starts with, if you're the Son of God. God just declared it, now we get the test, if you're really this guy. Okay? Now, you know who else in the Bible has been declared the Son of God before? All of Israel. We might today call them children of God, but yeah, the, the phrasing in Old Testament language was the Israelites were the chosen sons of God. They were chosen for what? To be a blessing to the nations, that through this people, the rest of the world would come to know who God was and be reconciled with God. That was their task on earth. They've already been, like Jesus, declared the sons of God. And in their testing over the centuries, they fail. This is what is Matthew, I think, is actually up to, because he is taking some very uh, references to Old Testament stories where the previous sons of God, which are the Israelites, failed, and then the devil is going, so, Jesus, are you going to be any better than they were? So... Here's Old Testament illusion number one, okay? Can you remember a story in the Old Testament? This might be a little, little tough to remember, but a moment when God has a conversation with the devil or Satan about whether or not something is, very, something is really true or not, about somebody being righteous or good enough or faithful enough. Anybody remember that story? I got a couple now. Say it a little louder. It's Job. Yeah, it's Job. So this, remember Job. Job is the character that is the suffering person. And the setup in that story is that God's up in heaven, and God's looking down, and he goes, look at my friend Job. Oh, Job is such a good guy. He's so righteous, he's, and he's so faithful. Don't you love him? And he's up in heaven. God's up in heaven talking to what is some sort of picture of heaven where there's a divine council. You could think of it as angels of the heavenly host or whatever kind of mystery is going on in heaven. God's talking to other characters who are there. And he talks to somebody who's named the accuser. Okay? And the accuser is in God's divine council. And the accuser says, yeah, well, sure. Look at all the blessings you've given Job. Look at all the land, the property, the family, this big family, his wives, all this stuff he's got. You know, if you took that away from him, do you really think he's still going to be a faithful and righteous guy? And God goes, I'll take you up on that bet. That's how Job starts. And the word in Hebrew for the divine counsel character, that is the word accuser, that we would translate to English as the accuser, in Hebrew is Satan. So literally, we have a story where uh, God tests a righteous, faithful character by using the devil. It's much later that Satan will kind of 
become in the biblical story somehow also the personification of evil but he starts in the bible as nothing more than in god's holy council being the one who goes let's find out if that's true and by the way this matthew i think is really doing this because the rabbis through history did a lot of this they took that pattern of job and they would take truth statements uh, you know, if they were, they were teaching and they wanted to teach some theology or philosophy, they would make a truth statement and then they would use that as a structure of teaching, right? God says that this is true, is it? And so they would tell these stories in rabbinic tradition where they would go, God says this, and then the devil goes, yeah, let's find out. What if you did this to them? What if you did that to them? What if you did that to them? So by challenging the idea, you find out if it's true or not. Rabbis have been doing this all through history. Matthew would have been aware of it. The audience for this would have been aware of it. And so by the time we get to Matthew, this makes sense to you too, I bet. Devil's advocate, right? If somebody's playing devil's advocate, they're not necessarily against you, but they're going, have you really thought this through? Let's, let's pick apart from every angle and make sure that what you're up to, what you want to do, let's, let's see if it still stands up. That's what it's about. All right, so you get this sort of Job pattern. And it's really, really important that before we even get into the rest of the Old Testament stuff and these three temptations to recognize, again, not good versus evil. The devil here is an agent of God. Testing Jesus to see if this time around, the one that's been declared son of God will actually be better than the last one who got declared son of God. So with that, we get three, right? It's three temptations. Devil shows up at the first one and says, Jesus, if you're the son of God, let's test this out. If you're the son of God, turn this stone into bread. Because he's been out in the wilderness for 40 days and he's hungry. The Old Testament reference to this that I think makes the most sense is the Israelites, sons of God, get saved from Egypt, saved from slavery, they go out into the wilderness. And how long do they live out in the wilderness? 40 years. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, but the connection there I don't think can be ignored. Uh, 40 days is how long you get tested in the wilderness and you get prepared to enter the next phase kind of thing, right? So out in the wilderness, what happens? Israelites are hungry. They start complaining. And they say to Moses, because Moses is sort of the intercessor between them and God, they go, Moses, we're so hungry. Oh, it would have been better if we were still slaves in Egypt. Let us go back. And Moses is going, are you kidding me? They want to go back to their slavery? They're like, it's better that at least we had food. So Moses prays to God, and this is how we get manna. This is when we get this stuff that comes down out of the sky every morning and lands on the ground like dew, and they're supposed to collect it up and make bread out of it. And God gives them a couple of instructions about this, preparatory action towards going into the promised land. He goes, so I'm going to do this every day, and every day you're to collect it, and every day you're supposed to take what you need and make it into bread, and I will do it again the next day. Daily bread like in the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread. Do you know what the Israelites do 
day one, they go, oh, finally. And a whole bunch of people who are a little more advanced than the rest or you know, more physically capable run out into the fields that do and they start grabbing the manna as much as they can, leaving the rest of the folks who aren't as fast or capable with just a little bit of manna. Surprising that humans reacted to this this way. Moses goes, okay, okay, okay. Not fair. Let's weigh it out because we are all supposed to share this equally. Then Moses weighs it, and it turns out kind of this miraculous thing happens where no matter how much you collected or didn't collect, everybody has enough for the day. All right. So it doesn't matter how much you collect. It doesn't matter how much. God's going to make sure that everyone's got enough. Next thing they do, though, is they go, you know what? What if God doesn't give us this every day? And so they go out one morning, and they start collecting it, and they try and collect more and then storing it for a few days, right? It makes sense. Put it on your shelf. We're prepared. But God's like, I said, I will provide every day, and I will give you enough. You have to learn this lesson. And so what happens is, anytime they would try and collect it for more than a day at a time, it would go rotten by the next morning. And by the way, every morning there was more manna on the ground. But you get the sense that they're failing? The first word here is trust. Another word that goes with it is a lack of trust can lead to some serious selfish ambition. Getting more than what you need, hoarding more than what you need. The first sons of God fail at this. So whatever it is that they're supposed to be on God's behalf in the world, it turns out they're not great at it. Jesus, if you're going to be the son of God, are you any better at it? And so Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, God, Jesus says, yeah, I'm really hungry, but I'm going to trust God on what needs to come next. And that means me not using the power that I have for my own needs, my own wants, but following what he wants. Passes the test, right? And if you think about a Messiah who's about to go through what Jesus is about to go through, he sure is going to need to trust God. He's going to be in that garden the night before his crucifixion. He's going to be praying to God, if this cup can pass from me, God, please let it pass. And it doesn't pass. And he's still got to do what God wants, even if he doesn't want to do it himself. Yeah. The Son of God this time is going to have to learn to trust and not to use his power for his own ambition. That's number one. Number two is the devil brings Jesus up to the highest point on the temple and says, throw yourself down. Back in the land of Israel, in, in the wilderness during those 40 years, first it was, oh, we're so hungry, so God gives them manna. Then it's, we're so sick of manna, can't we have some meat? So God goes, here's some quail. And then they go, oh, we're thirsty, there's not enough water, give us more water. And so you get this little story where Moses prays to God and goes, it's not just that they're thirsty, it's if I don't give them water this time, they're going to stone me to death. They don't trust me and they don't believe in you anymore. I don't know why, because you took them out of slavery, you've been protecting you every, every single day, but they're really like, if we're the sons of God, then give us what we want. And so God directs Moses to go out to a particular rock and raise his staff, and he strikes this 
the stone, and water flows, and they drink. And God lives up to what God said. God would protect them and give them what they need. They need water. But who were the Israelites along the way? Selfish, and I think the word here is manipulative. They knew the covenant that God had promised them. And so instead of having a real relationship with God, they're just doing that kind of prodigal son thing. Give me what you owe me. A transactional relationship. Manipulative. It's like those folks who do snake handling, right? It's, it's like, I'm going to put myself in a really risky spot, so I'm going to make sure that God really is going to protect me and I can show the world that I'm better or something. Something along that, that happens. This event, even though God gives them water, do you know we get, we get the Old Testament law that Jesus quotes when he says, you shall not put your, put your God to the test? It actually comes from Deuteronomy. And it quotes that story it, from Deuteronomy. It, it says, let me see if I can find it here a second. You must not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah, where that water thing happened was at a place called Massah. So Jesus can manipulate the covenant. He can stand on the top of that temple and know that no matter what happens, God's not going to let him die that way, that that's not the way he needs to die. And so he can throw himself off and the angels will attend him. He can, anybody can, Jesus could manipulate God. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. It's number two. Number three, number three is not that if you're a son of God, but if you worship me. Hey, Jesus, someday you're going to go from being the son of God and someday God is going to give you all authority over heaven and earth. Right? That's how Matthew ends. Jesus says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He goes from being the prince to being the king. Right? Son of God is just, I'm a child of God, so I'm a prince. And then someday God goes, okay, now you're in charge. All authority in heaven and on earth. Prince to king. But the devil goes, and you know what you got to do to get all through that? I'll give it to you today. I'll give it to you today, and all you have to do is worship me too. The word on this one is idolatry. And there isn't one story in the Old Testament about how the Israelites failed at this. They did it all the time. You go back to those Old Testament stories, and you know, even when they're out in the wilderness, what are they doing? They're building golden calves because they don't trust God enough. They're like, well, let's, let's hedge our bets. Let's get another God in here that we can pray for that will protect us and take care of us. They get into the promised land, finally. And what do they do? They start inviting uh, the other peoples around them to start using the temple and using their synagogues and their places of worship to worship other gods. Nothing in the Old Testament ever gets God as mad as this. This is the number one thing. In fact, it's the number one thing on the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. And yet they do it over and over again. Nothing gets God more angry. And yes, God has the personality where he can get angry. You ever wondered why this is the biggest problem in God's heart or head about their status as the children of God? Well, if you've ever been cheated on, you might understand. 
Because when you give your heart, your soul, your life to someone else, and then they kind of share it with, they don't give it back to you in the same way when they cheat with you. It's painful. So there's just a relational thing. When you cheat on God, it hurts God. But there's another thing. Remember, God chooses sons of God and says, you are this to be what? A blessing to others. The rest of the world will come into a relationship with me through you. In the Old Testament, what was happening is you start introducing these other, other gods into the temple, especially when the, the expectations of those other gods are things like child sacrifice. And God goes, this is what you think my reputation in the world's going to be? You're mixing this up and people are going to think, the rest of the world through you is going to think that I represent child sacrifice. Nothing makes God more angry than being misrepresented to all those he wants to love by being the God that you should actually forget. They do it over and over again. Number one commandment, number one thing Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind comes from number one of the Ten Commandments. So this is the moment. This is the really big one. It's in this one you realize if if Jesus doesn't trust, if, if he's willing to manipulate God, if the other ones, if he were willing to do this, he'd probably do this one too, but this is the one. You can skip all the suffering. You can skip dying on the cross. You can have all the authority over the entire world, I'll give it to you as an agent of God. I will give it to you today, but you have to decide to worship me too. Now we know Jesus says no. What I can tell you about this story is, again, we can get distracted by the fact that it's the devil. We can get distracted by, again, that it's Satan. But isn't it more interesting when it's really about whether we have succeeded or whether or not Jesus succeeded, whether we fail or whether or not Jesus fails, and the comparison, the God and then us, actor one and actor two. This is the gospel being laid out to us. This is Matthew going, okay, he's the son of God, what does that mean? Let's bet that. Let's find out if it's worth your, your trust to put in him. This is a story that, that kind of goes, here's all the confession of everything you've ever gone wrong, everything you've ever done wrong, because you do it too. Idolatry is not just the Israelite sin. It's ours. Think of it this way. Every time we sin, use that word sin, every time we sin, what it means is that we're missing the mark. God has a plan. God has a way to act that God wants us to do, and we fail to live up to it. It's like that arrow you shoot at the bullseye but then it's off. You miss the mark. Well, when you think about it, pull back. Why did you miss the mark? Probably because you had either your own idea in your head or someone else's idea in your head that said, no, there's going to be an easier way. There's going to be a better way. I won't have to do that narrow path of God because I can do this. I can kind of cheat a little. Everything where we miss the mark can be rooted back in idolatry where we decided that someone else's voice, whether it's our own or someone else's, but not God's, can be the way that we go. 
and then we miss the mark. It's always idolatry. And we all fail. And that sounds like horrible news, but don't miss the good news of this, because today, again, we meet the Jesus, we meet the guy who God says, all right, this time, Son of God, can he live up to it? And he does. At every point where he could have chosen selfish ambition, when he could have manipulated God and gotten the power that he wanted, when he could have gone another way and still been in charge of everything in the world, he didn't do it. If you're the son of God, can you be trusted with that task? And Jesus passed this test. It's for God and it's for us to witness I just want to close again with that, that passage from Hebrews, because in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews really is about kind of bringing all that Old Testament tradition and ideas and stories together and trying to make sense of it for us as Christians. Let me just read it again, what they say about this. Since then we have such a great high priest who passed through heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one in every, respect, in every respect who has been tested as we were, yet is without sin. Let therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in times of need. You get to be a failure and yet you get to approach the throne with boldness because Jesus, the one who's not a failure, gives you mercy and grace. Let us pray. Gracious God, this morning, thank you again for sending Jesus into the world. Thank you for his determination to be faithful to you, to trust you, to be in a real relationship with you, to not bow down to any other voice, any other God. And thank you that we as his people even in the midst of the moments of our weaknesses and our failures, can still look to him and know that there is grace and there is mercy because of him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well,